Hello, and welcome to Telling, my storytelling podcast featuring all new works by yours truly. I've been on a bit of a hiatus due to some construction in my neighborhood and a brief but cool opportunity to ghostwrite for a fancy podcast in New York. But this week, I'm dropping not one, not two, but three new episodes, all of them entirely true, and all of them very adventurous. You can find visual accompaniment for this first section on Instagram at balloonist underscore Laurent underscore Skibbutz. A link is provided for you in the written episode summary on Spotify. Ahead on the horizon, be on the lookout for legends, swamps, mad scientists, jackals, and balloons. Part one. Le rêve. The dream. When Laurent Skibutz was 12, he discovered an old book in a library in Freiburg, Switzerland, about a man who dreamed of flying across Africa long before planes graced the skies. This man invented and built an enormous balloon, the largest balloon on Earth, in order to find the source of the Nile River. Then he convinced his best adventuring friend and one hapless servant to accompany him across Africa. At 55 feet tall and 75 wide, his balloon, the Victoria, towered over most buildings in London. It contained over 90,000 cubic feet of hydrogen, enough to lift four tons of supplies and to carry three men across Africa for five weeks, giving the book its title, Five Weeks in a Balloon, by Jules Verne. Entranced, Laurent read the novel cover to cover several times. He didn't care that it was fiction. He loved the detailed descriptions of the gadgetry, right down to the adventurer's supply list and the precise calculation of the weight the balloon could carry. He loved the romanticism of the voyage, to see a continent from the heavens and meander along the Nile and be the first European to know its origin, with nothing separating the pilot from the air or the ground below. By balloon, the boy was hooked. Someday, he decided, he would build his own Victoria and fly it across continents for days or weeks at a time with another friend and passengers. However, the balloon described in the book would have been far too dangerous to fly. It used both hydrogen, a highly flammable gas, and a flame burner for lifting power. It surely would have exploded in midair. This did not phase Laurent. The heyday of ballooning ended over a century before Laurent's encounter with Jules Verne's first novel. Verne published Five Weeks in a Balloon in 1863, at the height of Europe's balloonomania, when giant balloons hovered over his native Paris, hauling increasingly large and ornate baskets aloft. Verne never flew in a balloon, but he consorted with a man known as the Great Nadar, a French balloonist and the founder of aerial photography, whose ballooning career culminated with the launch of his masterpiece. Le Giant. At 145 feet tall, Le Giant was capable of hauling a two-level cabin complete with toilet, 
photography studio, and printing press, aloft with 12 people aboard. However, Le Giant was so large it proved impossible to land. On its second voyage, it crashed into the German countryside, barely avoiding a locomotive, before exploding and all but destroying the passengers in tow. This did not face Laurent. For Laurent, ballooning seemed a perfect way to travel, to explore, and to show the world to others. A balloon did not need a runway. A balloon could land anywhere. The two insurmountable challenges with these magnificent flying machines were that they could not fly against the wind and that no one had ever successfully developed a mechanism to steer them. That made them incongruous with most modern notions of planned exploration. But in Laurent's mind, it was precisely this that made them true instruments of adventure. Lacking rudders or brakes, they went where the wind decided. Once you climbed aboard, it was destination unknown. In the early 1900s, when endurance balloon racing became all the rage, pilots launched into the sky from England and France and vanished into forests in Russia, requiring months to chop their way out. One pilot flew over the North Sea and survived only because he managed to land on the deck of a fishing vessel far off the Norwegian coast. Balloons could rise straight into space if unattended. It was the human body that limited them. This proved useful for spying, mapping, the study of weather, and entertainment in the 19th century, but became less than practical for the precise travel and exploration expected in modern times. For Laurent, that only added to the allure. He is fond of the old balloonist's adage. Balloons flew long before the first planes took off. They can fly higher than planes, and they will fly long after the last plane has landed. Despite their ability to reach the upper decks of the atmosphere, the advent of the combustible engine soon erased the love of fuelless flight. When the first endurance balloon race was sponsored by Gordon Bennett in 1906, the balloon mania that had captured the world's attention for nearly a century and a half was already in its twilight. Two brothers named Wright had launched the first airplane in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, just three years prior. The popularity of ballooning went into swift decline, and the oldest form of human flight was reduced to an obscure pastime. This did not faze Laurent. The boy who had fallen in love with Verne's vision became a scientist. He married, he had two children, and named the eldest Jules. He gathered all the survival skills necessary to make long, grueling voyages and to extract himself from wild places. He became an amateur radiologist, a diver, a high-altitude medic, and he ascended towards the sky, first as an alpinist, then as a glider pilot, a hot air balloon pilot, and finally a gas balloon pilot. Becoming a gas balloon pilot is both expensive and requires an exceptional amount of training and precision, which is then cast to the wind. Unlike hot air ballooning, in which the balloon lifts by heating the air inside with a propane burner, gas balloons are filled with hydrogen, which is the second most abundant gas on Earth and relatively cheap but highly flammable, or helium, 
which is very rare, very expensive, but non-flammable. Every pilot who flies a hydrogen-filled balloon is essentially flying a floating bomb. Because of the expense and the dangers, gas ballooning is limited to authorized pilots only. This did not phase Laurent. His dream had not diminished over the years. It had grown. With some modification of design to increase safety, Laurent still dreamed of building and flying his own Victoria, a hydrogen balloon so large that it could haul a two-ton load aloft and voyage for days, perhaps weeks, carrying two pilots and at least one civilian in a basket with a separate sleeping compartment, an unusual luxury for modern gas ballooning, which would make lengthy travel accessible to people without gas ballooning piloting licenses. With a reusable balloon envelope, the project would be an ecological form of flight that could involve artists, scientists, ground crews, hydrogen experts, and translators from across the globe, shifting ballooning from competitions of first, highest, and furthest towards sustainable and inclusive exploration, study, and observation. With this kind of machine, we are in another dimension, that of travel. We can sacrifice cubic meters of gas to get close to the ground, drop anchor, and go down the rope ladder and meet people, Laurent said. Most tourists who have traveled by balloon have been lifted in colorful, teardrop-shaped hot-air balloons, which are less fickle to fly and theoretically safer than gas balloons. But the distance a hot-air balloon can fly is restricted by the number and weight of propane tanks in the basket. They are limited to mere hours in the sky. The more fuel they carry, the more lift the balloon needs, and the less space there is for people and supplies. Whereas gas balloons, whose entire fuel supply is inside the balloon's envelope, can fly for days on end, or, if large enough, weeks. In Europe, new gas balloon prototypes are highly discouraged, and each year the air traffic space becomes increasingly crowded and increasingly regulated. The idea that a person could build a new gas balloon prototype and fly it across continents for days on end with untrained passengers was almost ridiculous. This also did not phase Laurent. He began competing at the highest levels of endurance balloon racing. In the States, the America's Cup, and in Europe, the Gordon Bennett Cup, the world's oldest balloon race. Both grueling endurance races, in which pilots flew for hundreds of miles over several days without stopping. Above all, Laurent remained enthralled by aeronautic technology and his dream of turning the Victoria into reality. At the institute he chaired at the University of Western Applied Sciences, his students created balloon baskets for long-distance travel triangularly shaped so that they could seat three people with a compartment for a passenger to sleep in. He also created software that could predict the trajectory of a huge hydrogen balloon in the sky. This data, when synthesized with precise meteorological information that forecasted winds at different altitudes, could predict how the balloon would fly and where it would land. None of these techniques were new. Since they are at the mercy of the wind, aeronauts have used the layered, varying aerial currents that crisscross the sky at different altitudes to navigate for centuries. 
but the models developed at Laurent's Institute were highly detailed and more precise than any before. With some reliability, they could predict the unpredictable and schedule the unschedulable. However, Laurent still had two problems. He had not achieved the level of fame, nor won the sort of races that would attract sponsorship for the project he'd been dreaming of since boyhood, nor had he found a co-pilot willing to embark on such an adventure. Who would share his mad dream to bring a 150-year-old legend into reality? Who would want to fly the world's largest balloon across continents? Enter Nicolas Tieche, one of the greatest balloon pilots in Switzerland. Nick grew up with his parents and sister in Chateau d'Ay, a region of Switzerland that has attracted aeronauts for decades. Throughout the year, balloons could be seen in the sky. Pilots in training are testing their knowledge of the currents that ran through the valley. Every winter, a yearly balloon festival brought dozens of balloonists from all over Europe, the way surfers are drawn to the waves on the coast of California or Portugal. The year Nick was 11, a huge black balloon landed in his front yard. The pilot offered to take Nick, his father, and sister aloft. While in the sky, the three decided to become balloon pilots. For a time, Nick's sister was the youngest balloon pilot in Switzerland. Nick obtained his hot air balloon license at 18 and his gas balloon license shortly thereafter, and he kept rising. He specialized in extreme heights and distances and set about breaking the Swiss ballooning records for both. To celebrate the birth of his daughter in 1998, he and a co-pilot broke the record for the highest ascent by balloon in Switzerland. They rose to 37,565 feet in an open basket, an altitude at which the human body begins to disintegrate due to lack of air pressure. Teeth crack, joints fill with air, noses bleed. A gas balloon can rise through the stratosphere without trouble, but without pressurized suits or a cabin, any air pockets trapped in the human body expand due to the lack of pressure. At 36,000 feet, the body envelope begins to fail. Blood leaks from the eyes, nose, and ears. Nick has had a close encounter or two. He once collided with a radio tower during a night flight and survived mostly by luck. When he returned from his last extreme height journey, he had trouble walking because his joints ached. Endurance ballooning is an all-consuming passion which takes much of his free time from his profession as a pharmaceutical chemist and his life with his wife and two children, grown now but still studying and living at home. On weekends, he heads a piloting and balloon safety school, tinkers with balloon rigs in his garage, or trains. Both he and Laurent have the fitness level of Olympians. Nick is an accomplished mountaineer and skier. On the ground, he smokes the occasional cigarette, but never, ever near a balloon. In 2011, both Nick and Laurent found themselves without co-pilots. They decided to team up for the Gordon Bennett, and they discovered a certain magic between them. Laurent loved the geeky side of the sport and had a real competitive edge. Nick, on the other hand, often found the onslaught of data overwhelming. He loved the sheer physicality of flying. They were almost always in agreement, but when they disagreed, their compromises made them stronger. 
In 2017, they arrived in America as unknowns and smashed the world record for the longest gas balloon flight in competition. They flew from Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Labrador City, Newfoundland, by riding the tail end of a hurricane. They clocked speeds of 88 miles per hour, covering over 2,200 miles in less than three days. As they waited for a chopper to haul them out of a bog in Labrador, Laurent registered the importance of the win. It would launch their piloting duo, previously referred to by the media as the small pistols from Switzerland, into ballooning superstardom. Suddenly, Laurent's childhood dreams seemed possible. As light snow fluttered down around them, he floated the idea of creating and co-piloting Vern's Victoria to Nick. Nick was intrigued. He'd always dreamed of flying across a giant swath of open airspace. Kazakhstan, China, or maybe Brazil, preferably in a hydrogen balloon that could reinflate using solar power. But if they were to take people with them, who would these people be? And where would they come from? And how would they manage for 10 days or more in a balloon basket the size of a bathtub? Would they include people from the countries over which they flew? Verne's novel was a colonialist book that took little account of the people below the basket. Would they be attempting a replica or something entirely innovative? What exactly did it mean to create Victoria? Laurent was not faced. The wind in Labrador attracted attention within the ballooning community and provided them with the foundation they needed to begin. First, they would build a team of experts to support the Victoria. Meteorologists, ground crew, air traffic controllers. That was, in many ways, the most difficult task, getting people excited enough to volunteer for the project before they obtained the necessary investors. They could hone this team through racing and use the attention drawn by their victories to acquire a big international sponsor, a brand that would be recognized in any country they might land in, and the rest would follow. Nick had built their racing balloon basket in his garage. Why not a larger one? A balloon? That they could build easily. A team, a team took years to assemble and train. Now every flight had the added pressure of bringing Laurent and Nick closer to obtaining the sponsorship needed to fund a team that could support their version of the Victoria. But to keep the dream alive, they needed to keep winning. That's all for today's telling. Parts two and three of this story appear in the following episodes. Don't forget to check out Laurent's aerial photography at Balloonist Laurent's Gibbuts on Instagram. Be well, do good work, and thanks for listening.